Heavenly Father, we bow our heads to you, Father, in acknowledgement of your sovereign rule over all your creation and in our hearts through your Spirit. This year, Lord, is, is starting with concerns and fears in the hearts of many for a world that is increasingly dangerous and unpredictable. And yet, Father, for us, those of us who know you, we know there's nothing unpredictable. The world is exactly as it needs to be to serve your purpose, Father. Not as you desire it to be, not in, not in the way you will ultimately bring it about, Father, in the way that the scriptures tell us it will one day be. A day of peace, without tears, without pain, without death. Lord, that is your desire. And that will one day be the world we live in. But, but for now, Father, there is a plan at work that you are authoring to bring all things to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And you are in the midst of that work even now. And we understand that. Though we cannot necessarily understand the days we live in in all regard, we do know, Father, you are on your throne. And you retain the sovereign power you've always had to bring things according to your will. And, Father, we ask that you would give us peace and patience and joy and hope in the midst of a world that needs to know you but desperately doesn't, Father. Desperately is in its sin, as we once were, as we still are in many ways, Father. But yet, by your grace, Father, we have been preserved from the penalty of that sin, and we are so thankful, Father, to begin a year, another year, safely in your will, in your grace, in your love. And Father, I ask that this year would be a year in which you could use each of us in a mighty way to spread that truth to others, to share what we know, to share who we know in Christ, and that because of that opportunity to share, Father, you would choose to use us in some way to bring others into the family of God. That would be a great joy for each of us this year, Father, that we could be useful to you in that way. And meanwhile, Father, we want to be like the Son that we worship. We want to be holy and blameless. We want to be full of love, compassion, and grace. We want to be the one that shows Christ to the world by our words, our actions, not just our words. And we look forward, Father, to how you want to grow us into that person, that man or woman of Christ. And let the word this morning be an instrument in your hand to mold our hearts into that person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 14. Now, for those of you who may have missed the last couple of weeks, and even for those of us who were here, I guess, let's remember we're in the study of Samson, the final judge in the book of Judges. And so far, in, in the introduction to Samson, we've learned he's impulsive, he's rash, he's stubborn, and he's prideful, which obviously does not make for the best beginning material for a judge. And yet, that's who the Lord is working with here. The Lord has raised him up. To lead Israel, despite all of his faults. And the principal purpose in his judgeship was given before he was even born. When his coming was announced to his parents, the angel of the Lord declared that he would be brought into the world to begin the defeat of the Philistines, the people who were oppressing Israel. But instead, as we last saw him at the beginning of chapter 14, he wasn't defeating the Philistines, remember? He was chasing after their daughters, seeking a wife. Last week we saw him travel to a little town called Timnah. And in Timnah he found the woman he thought he should marry, a Philistine woman. And he took his father with him and they secured the bride. Samson went into a betrothal. They went into a covenant. And in doing so he went against the counsel of his parents and of course against the desires of the Lord. And on the way down to be betrothed, you remember we had the moment where the Lord placed the lion 
in the path of Samson in the vineyards, when he went off the path into the vineyards. And then God endowed Samson with supernatural power so that he could defeat the lion with his bare hands. And as we looked at that, we learned that the Lord intended that encounter to impress upon Samson's heart a truth. That his wandering heart was moving in the wrong direction, but instead the Lord had called him to engage and defeat Israel's enemy, the Philistines. He was given the position of authority, he was given the power of the Spirit, so that he would accomplish that purpose, and yet here he was, going down the road to Timnah, to enter into a marriage with the enemy. And what God wanted that moment with the lion to do was halt him in his path and shock his conscience and get him to rethink what he was about doing. Instead... Samson kept the whole thing a secret, we're told, and he went on with his plans. And he was betrothed, and then after a brief time of waiting, he returns to that town by himself to claim his bride. And as we saw last week, it began a week-long marriage feast. The tradition in the Philistines was that there would be a week-long festival, at the end of which the marriage would be consummated, the marriage would be made official. And as he's going back to Timnah for that, you remember he decides to take one more look at the lion carcass that he defeated at that earlier time. And to his surprise, what he discovers is a beehive has been made, bees have made a hive inside the carcass, the rotting carcass of this dead animal. And that was unnatural behavior, we said. Bees don't do that normally. And that indicates that the Lord did this supernaturally as another way of speaking to Samson in this moment. Would Samson understand that Something sweet awaited him if he would act in obedience to defeat God's enemies? Or would he try to obtain that reward by his own hand, so to speak, and in doing so defile himself? And as we saw last week, well, Samson fails that test. He reached in with his bare hands, he scooped up some of that honey, and in the process he broke one of the three vows that form a Nazarite, the Nazarite vows, because he touched an unclean thing, a dead animal, which was one of the things that Nazarites were prohibited from doing. They couldn't touch unclean things, they couldn't eat or drink of fruit from the vine, and they couldn't cut their hair. Now one of those vows has been broken. Then he goes into Timnah, we saw the wedding feast begin, and that feast, as we said, lasts seven days, after which the couple's officially married. And then we saw Samuel in the story, Samuel's the author, we saw Samuel use a very rare Hebrew word for feast. That word means drink banquet, drink banquet. In other words, he was saying this is not just a feast centered on the eating, this is a feast centered on the drinking of the wine, which would indicate that now Samson has not only broken the first of his Nazarite vows, he's broken the second as well. He's drinking from the fruit of the vine. That means there's only one vow left keeping his Nazarite status in place. And then finally, we learned last week that during this week-long festival, they like to have games and riddles and things like that to entertain themselves as, as part of the week-long activities. And Samson proposed a riddle from what he had seen earlier with the lion's dead body. And we'll pick up again there in verse 14. This is the riddle that he gave. He says in verse 14, So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Now you and I, knowing the background I just gave you, we understand what this riddle is referring to, obviously. And we have the answer, so it's easy to see. But if you didn't know the backstory, then it would have been a very difficult mystery to understand what this riddle was referring to. Because normally what comes out of a carnivore, an eater, is meat. And meat is not sweet. So it doesn't make sense, and that's the riddle, obviously. And Samson knew it would be difficult, which is why he wagered 30 pairs of fine clothing with the 30 guests in the banquet. 
And as you can see at the end of verse 14, even after three days of noodling on this riddle, no one could solve it. And at that point, this game became a lot more than just a game because there is honor on the line now to say nothing of the cost of the bet. So the tension is building here. Someone is going to have to win this bet before the seven days is up or all 30 guests have to pony up a significant cost. So it appears at this point Samson has won the bet. But as we ended last week, not so fast. You learn back in verse 4 in the beginning of this chapter that the Lord is working behind the scenes in this situation. And though Samson has done the wrong thing in pursuing this woman, the Lord is at work using his evil or sinful desire to propel Samson into another direction, into the right direction. So what we do now, this morning, is we pick up at this point watching how the Lord turns the tables on Samson. So we return now to the feast week. We're at about the fourth day now of the seven. And at this point, the bride-to-be is concerned for the sake of her family. She's nervous. And so now you're going to watch how she works with her family to bend the rules. Verse 15. Well, then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me, and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people, and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother, so should I tell you? (laughs) However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. Ah, So now, on the fourth day... Some of the 30 guests get together and they begin to get worried. They begin to see the potential. They're going to lose this bet. And now, whether for the sake of honor or the treasure, whatever, they decide they have to do something to ensure Samson doesn't beat them in this riddle. So they corner his bride, right? The woman of the family. Notice Samuel here in writing about it calls the woman Samson's wife in verse 15. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean Samson and this woman were already married. They're only betrothed at this point. They'll stay that way until the end of the feast. But in that day, in that culture, the term wife was applied equally to betrothed women just as much as it was to the fully married woman. You remember this from the stories of Mary and Joseph with Jesus being born. Mary and Joseph had not had relations. They were only betrothed. And yet, when Mary turns up pregnant and Joseph assumes that she's been fooling around on him, Matthew tells us that Joseph went to divorce her quietly. And that tells you that even though they were only betrothed, legally they were viewed as already united. And so the word wife sometimes would be used even in that in-between time. So in this case, it's a betrothed woman, and the Philistine guests threaten her. They come to her and they say, we're going to burn down your father's house and burn you with fire. And then they add, Did we get invited just so that you could impoverish us in the process of this wedding? Now, in that culture, if you invited someone to a wedding feast, you were legally obligated to care for them properly. Not only was it a social disgrace if you failed to care for them in the right way, but there were financial implications as well. You remember in John chapter 2 in the wedding feast of Cana, 
where Mary is there with her son Jesus and the wine has run out and Mary is so concerned for the sake of the guest's honor that she wants her son to do something about the wine. Well, that's all a part of this same cultural sense that if you don't treat wedding guests well, it's a huge problem and not just a social disgrace. In fact, you would be expected by law to compensate your guests if they did not get the kind of reception they expected, the kind of welcome, the kind of treatment they liked. In fact, a dissatisfied guest could claim for himself one of your goat or sheep as compensation for not getting the proper treatment at the wedding. If they didn't like the food, if they didn't think they had enough wine, well, just going to take this goat home. And you could lose a lot of money if you had a lot of guests. All right. So obviously, if your guests are required to leave behind a valuable set of clothing in the midst of a disgraceful loss to a riddle, well, that's certainly not taking care of them in a good way, is it? Nevertheless, when they say they're going to be impoverished, let's be honest, that's an exaggeration, right? Losing a set of clothes is not going to put them in the poorhouse. Nonetheless, though, they're incensed at the idea of the loss. And here's what I think is really going on here. Philistines are incensed at a Hebrew getting the best of them. Because as we've said before, Jews and Philistines were frenemies. They had this kind of working relationship out of necessity, but at the root of it all, they were enemies. So that's, I think, the driving force here for these people. So after hearing the threats, Samson's future wife is understandably concerned here, especially when they say they're going to burn down her and her house. It's essentially a death threat. And at this point, she's really concerned because she doesn't know the answer. She doesn't have an answer for them. Samson hasn't told her. He hasn't confided in her at this point. So she has no choice but to try to get the answer out of her husband, future husband, and then pass it along to her guest. That's her plan. And already you can see the allegiance of this woman is with whom? With her people, right? The Philistines. It's not with her future husband, Samson. Certainly not with the Jewish people. And herein lies the essential problem of what Samson is doing here. Samson is marrying a woman from the Philistines, a pagan Gentile. And she is not going to suddenly switch her allegiance to Jewish people who worship Yahweh. That's not in the cards here. She will forever feel this tug back to her culture and to her family. And what will happen over time if this marriage goes forward is she will draw Samson away from the Lord, from his mission, from his purpose. Think about it. How likely is he going to be to destroy the Philistine people as he was commissioned to do if his wife is one of them, if his father-in-law is one of them? The same stands true for God's people throughout history. It's not limited to Samson or to the Jews. The world will never gain inspiration, godly inspiration, merely from association with godly people. I know on a human level that makes some sense, and I will agree that in some limited way, godly people can influence ungodly people to better things, perhaps. But we're not talking here merely about behavior. The church, for example, does not exist on earth to make other people act better or even think better. The goal of the church is to be an ambassador for Christ so that they know the Lord and through His experience in their heart, they become different people. That's the real goal of the church. So it is not plausible that anyone, whether Samson in his day or us in our day, make a goal of making the world better by association. For friends, it never works that way. You do not raise their game. They tempt you into disobedience. And the Lord may, and I know He occasionally does use our relationships to bring someone into the faith. I mean, clearly that's what we're all about. 
But many more times, our associations simply open opportunities for the enemy to stumble us. So be purposeful in your association, not casual. And certainly, as Scripture says, don't be yoked to the unbeliever in advance of God doing that work. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you know, woman, who is to say that your husband will become the believer you hope him to be? Speaking to the woman in that case. You're betting against hope that God is going to do something that you can't be sure he's going to do. And if you're wrong, you've got yourself yoked to someone whose goal will always be to pull you back to the Philistines, not to become the worshiper of Yahweh, so to speak. So now this wife-to-be... She approaches Samson for the answer, and Samson isn't willing to give up the solution to the riddle, for obvious reasons. He apparently knows where this is going. At the end of verse 16, Samson says, look, I didn't even tell my parents. If I don't even tell my parents, why would I tell you? Now that comment is interesting to me, because it reveals something of Samson's attitude toward his future wife and toward marriage in general, doesn't it? He seems to place his allegiance to his parents above his allegiance to his future wife. The command of Scripture is that a man should forsake his mother and father and cling to his wife. But in what you see him doing, he's really reversing that. He's clinging to his parents even over his wife. It's really ironic in a way because you see the woman clinging to her people. You see Samson clinging to his people. And both of them are saying, we want to be married. For what purpose? Now granted, they're not married yet. So you could probably say, well, he's clinging to his parents because it hasn't officially changed yet. Okay, I get it. But they're only three days away. I mean, you would think at this point he might start to feel a little allegiance to his wife. Obviously, this is not the best way to start a long-term relationship. Neither person seems to trust or respect the other one very much. And I think you can now see clearly why the Lord has had his hand against this situation from the very beginning and why he's working now to prevent it. He's exposing even now the weaknesses here so that we're not confused about why in the end it doesn't take place. And also, I would argue, he's using this, this discord to set the stage for even more dramatic events here. And we're going to see them right now. All right, so the wife has gone to the husband or husband-to-be. And gentlemen, what does any good woman do when she isn't getting her way with her husband? She cries. Now, I'm being intentionally misogynistic here, so just run with me for a second, okay? And I, I'm fully aware that we now have an open carry law, so I'm very... I'm looking around here for a second. No, she, and that's what she does, right? She, and men can do this too, obviously. But she cries, and she claims that she's not loved. I call this a litmus test. In marriage counseling, whenever my wife and I are counseling other couples, we see this from time to time. I think it's a universal thing in marriage. The litmus test. This is whenever a wife or a husband turns a specific request of some sort, like in this case, tell me the riddle, that's the request, but they turn it into a test of love. They created a litmus test of love. In verse 16, the woman claims Samson hates her and doesn't love her. And what is her reasoning? What is the proof of her claim? He won't tell her the answer to a riddle. That's it? So we're to believe that this action, above all else, is a fair measure of Samson's love. It's as if the love one person has for another can be compressed into a single defining act upon which the entire relationship rests. Children and teenagers fall for this tactic all the time. This is a favorite, of course, for children. They claim they will die or they'll run away if they don't get this small little thing that they want. And we see it from an adult point of view as being the ridiculous thing that it is, right? How can you make your entire life now hinge 
on this little thing. Or our relationship as a family hinge on this one request. So it's clearly childish, which is all the more reason why we can say that this kind of a tactic has no place in an adult relationship, right? None of us should ever turn to our spouse, make some specific act in their life, the litmus test for their love for us. Now that's not to say we can't complain about it. Or have an argument for why it needs to change. But we don't raise it to that hyper level of saying our whole relationship now is, is defined by this. Now there are probably some acts of sin that could do that in a marriage, certainly. But we're talking about trivial things. And trivial things need to remain trivial, though they may have meaning. Now nevertheless, gentlemen, husbands, answer me this. What kind of a man can resist a woman crying? Well, apparently Samson could. At least for a little while. It says here, she comes to him on the fourth day, but he holds out till the seventh day. That's three days. In verse 17, the English translation makes it sound as if she cries for seven days, but that's not really the sense of it. The proper understanding from the Hebrew is she cried for the duration of the seven days, meaning to the end of the week. So Samson has endured basically four days of crying. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. Right? And it says in verse 17 that... She finally presses him so hard that in verse 17 he gives in. So, uh, husbands, you can identify with this, right? Can I get an amen on this? I mean, let's be honest. There's certainly this thing with women, right? They cry. And I know some of us would take consolation in knowing that if the mighty Samson couldn't hold out against a woman crying for four days, that we can give in too. I get it. But ironically, that's not the right way to understand this text from the biblical intent. The proper way to interpret these events is to ask this question. If Samson couldn't withstand the corrupting influence of a weeping Philistine woman for just four days, how is he going to stand up to the entire Philistine army? Right? That's the proper way to view this. It's only one woman. It's only four days. It's a little bit of crying and hysterics or whatever she did. You can't deal with that? Here again, the Lord is demonstrating that this marriage is a terrible decision on Samson's part and for the people of Israel because it's corrosive. It's weakening his character. And I'm not saying she did anything inherently wrong, right? She just wanted her way. My point is what she wanted was wrong and therefore what he gave in in doing was wrong and the whole situation is wrong. Samson tells her the answer and then she of course goes and tells her people. We knew that was coming. Notice Samuel writes that she tells her people It reminds us of where her allegiance is, right? The split is still evident. And then immediately on that same day, now we're on the seventh day, if they don't guess by the end of the day, and when does the day end in that culture? Sundown, right? So if they don't get the answer by the end of the day, by sunset, they have to pay up on the bet. So this is moving now with rapid pace. She gets the answer. She runs and tells them. They get the answer. They make sure they meet before sundown. In verse 18, they solve the riddle. 18. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Yeah, so they find out with the woman's help. And as Samson hears the answer, he immediately knows that his wife-to-be has betrayed his confidence. I have to believe even when he told her, he kind of knew this was coming. He says, if they had not plowed with his heifer, they would not have known the answer. Now, we hear that with a certain sense that's a little different than what they meant. To plow with a heifer is an expression that means they found harvest using his property on his land. You know, they sort of used his stuff to find their wealth. In the expression, then, of course, he is comparing his wife to a cow. But, but... We use the expression to refer to a woman's appearance, don't we? Not that we should do this. I'm just saying that's how it's normally meant. But in Samson's day, cows weren't thought to be ugly. 
No one took a particular offense to the appearance of a cow. But they were thought to be stubborn and dumb and in need of taming. And in that way, Samson is referring to his wife in a pejorative sense, yes. And in many ways, he's actually correct. If you want to put aside the fact that it's an insult and just look at the content of it, he's describing the woman pretty well, given what little we know about her. And here's the real irony. He could have just as easily been talking about himself. Samson's the one who's stubborn here. Remember, his parents tell him, can't we find you a wife from in our own family? He goes, no, I want that woman. He's stubborn. The Lord has spoke to him twice through this experience with the lion. No, nope, doesn't want to hear it. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And he's definitely rebellious in spirit, needing taming. And above all, I think he's dumb. Not in the ultimate sense. I'm not saying he's a stupid person overall. But in this setting, in this scenario, he's being very dumb. He was dumb to propose the bet. He was dumb to trust this woman. He did say nothing of his interest in marrying her in the first place. All of these were dumb decisions. Now remember, this scene is playing out only an hour or two before they are to cement this marriage. Consummating it in the marriage tent. But Samson is coming to know his prospective wife here with a proper understanding. Finally, she's betrayed him, she's dishonored him, and she has now impoverished him. And that's so ironic because she's working to prevent the impoverishment of her guests, but in the process, she has impoverished her future husband, her future household. She's impoverished herself, in a sense, while trying to keep the guests happy. So now, the Lord steps in at the 11th hour. He's going to stop the marriage. He's going to bring Samson back to his calling and to his mission. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them, speaking of the Philistines, and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. So this is what happened. The Spirit comes upon Samson. That's the first thing to notice, and we can't skip that, right? Everything comes from that. From that moment, he runs out of the town of Timnah. He goes about 23 miles to the coast, to Ashkelon, and does what is equivalently leaving the bride at the altar, right before the wedding would have been officially finished. Because the original agreement was to marry, and that agreement was binding. Therefore, the only official way to end this agreement, to end this engagement, would be by divorce. So this is a more complicated situation. He didn't just end the marriage. In our day, when we get engaged, what is engagement? Technically speaking, what is an engagement? Nothing. It says we might get married. Now, most of us mean it more sincerely than that, but in any other legal sense or in any other binding sense, it's a meaningless statement. It's just a statement that says we're fixing to think about getting married. And we might, we might not. Until it actually happens, you don't know. But in that day, betrothal means you are married. The only way you're going to separate is by divorce. Nevertheless, he has not finished the marriage process. And in that sense, he has left the bride without her husband. And then he goes and he runs, as we said, 23 miles to the Mediterranean Sea, to Ashkelon. There's still a modern city there today. And why has he made this trip impulsively? Well, he's gone down there to find the wealth that he's going to use to pay off the debt. Because Samson knows he's been tricked. He's been tricked by the Philistines, by the woman. And so he feels no obligation at all at this point to use his own money to pay up on the debt. Instead, he's going to make the Philistines pay the Philistines for the wager. It says he finds and kills 30 presumably wealthy 
Philistine men and he takes their fine clothes so that he can bring back the 30 garments he was obligated to give and use that to pay the debt. And with the 30 sets of clothes in hand, it says he goes back to Timnah, presumably he pays his debt, and then in anger he leaves the town, goes back to his hometown without ever finishing the marriage, without taking his wife with him. Now, what do we conclude from his actions? Because I know we're all thinking the same thing at this point, right? We're all wondering, did he just murder 30 innocent men to pay off a wager? This is the judge of Israel? Well, let's just start by acknowledging we've certainly seen judges doing bad things all the way through the book, right? But this would be a new low, or would appear to be a new low. Remember, Samson took this action, though, under the influence of the Spirit of the Lord. Did you remember that? This whole thing starts with the coming of the Spirit of the Lord. And that is key to understanding what is happening here. And there's also one other word you have to see properly to get the full sense of what Samson does. And that's in verse 19. In verse 19, Samuel writes that Samson took those clothes from those 30 men as spoil. In my English it says spoil. Yours might say booty, as in war booty. The word in Hebrew is talzah. A word that only Samuel uses. In fact, it's so rare that he uses it only twice in the entire Bible. Once here and once in 2 Samuel. And it means war booty, or the spoil that one army captures from a defeated foe. The fact that Samuel chose to use this word indicates that by the inspiration of the Spirit, Samuel believed that Samson's actions against the Philistines were an act of war. Not a crime, not a murder, but one combatant fighting other combatants, and then at the conclusion of the war, the losing side's valuable materials became the captured property of the other side. Spoil, booty. And that makes sense. Because Samson was raised up by God and empowered by the Spirit, we're told, to go to war against the Philistines, Israel's enemies. The problem here is not that Samson killed these 30 men. The problem is he hasn't been killing more. Honestly, that's the problem biblically here. He should have been leading armies of Israel against the Philistines. Or at the very least, he should be prosecuting the war on his own. But one way or the other, that was his calling. God said, I've raised you up. Have we not seen this pattern throughout the book of Judges, right? Judges get raised up for one purpose, as captains of armies to free Israel from their oppressors when God is ready for that to take place. But what has Samson been doing? He's been flirting with the enemy, not fighting the enemy. And the one thing I can tell you for sure is you don't try to make peace with your enemy by marrying their daughters when your commission is to fight them. All right, it's just that plain and simple. His actions against the Philistines in this case were appropriate, though they were motivated by carnal desires for winning a bet and all the rest. Nonetheless, he is finally moving in the direction the Lord has wanted him to go all along. And as we've said it here many times, you can either obey God the easy way or the hard way. And what the Lord is doing through Samson's experience here, through these sets of circumstances, is to get him on the right path to the right outcome, even though he had an entirely different purpose in mind when he was doing what he was doing. He's using Samson's impulsiveness and his selfishness to change his direction and get him back on obedience. Now, of course, killing these 30 guys is is just scratching the surface of what the Lord wants Samson to do in this case. But at the very least, what it did is it kept Samson from marrying this woman. You notice? And then it puts his focus back on defeating the oppressors of Israel. He comes back with the clothes. He storms off without his wife. The wife's family is mortified. They put on a feast for all these guests, promising them a wedding at the end, and they got no groom. Now, there was nothing, absolutely nothing you could do to dishonor a woman more in this culture 
than to betray her at the altar in the way that Samson did. It's like Samson's just ruined it all. This this has got to be corrected, which is why the family moves so fast. So what they do, as you see, is they go find some guy, some friend of Samson. We don't even know who this guy is. And they have him marry the woman instead. But here's the interesting thing. We're going to find out in chapter 15, Samson did not intend to not marry her. He was just so mad, he didn't want to go through with it right then. Chapter 15, he goes back to marry her. But here's the problem. The Lord has now put something in his path to prevent him from marrying her, and that is, she has a husband now. Isn't that interesting? The Lord takes that next step to ensure that Samson can't change his mind, that he won't go back even when his temper cools off. And this brings us to the end of our introductory episode in Samson's story. And as strange as chapter 14 has been, lions, bees and all, it's not the strangest thing we're going to learn in Samson's life. This man is an example of how far disobedience and carnal living can take us away from God's heart. Samson's self-willed behavior left him with no honor at this point, no wardrobe, no wife, and no satisfaction either. He's angry, he's sulking, he's frustrated. Now, remember this story, friends, when you find yourself in the midst of feeling these same things in life. When you are angry at something, sulking about something, frustrated about something in your life, angry at God or at least at the world, because of what's going on in your life. Think about this story for a moment, if you can, if it'll come back to mind. If you're sulking, if you're pouting because you didn't get what you want, things didn't work out the way you want, you're frustrated in your goals or getting what you thought you were going to get, you're marveling at your bad luck, on and on, maybe the story of Samson will come to your mind, and when it does, I want you to ask this question. What is God trying to tell me? Because that's really the question you should ask. That's the question Samson should have been asking himself. Don't you agree? As he's sitting back in his hometown without his wife, without his honor, without his wardrobe, everything's messed up. The plans just went to hell in a handbasket, as we like to say. He could have sat there and had a pity party, which apparently is what he does. Or he could have woke up one day and said to himself, wait a minute, wait a minute. God has given me the spirit and a commission and all this other stuff, my strength, etc., my judgeship. And yet he's allowed all this to happen. What should that be telling me? So when we find ourselves in a similar set of circumstances... Just think for a second, why was this the only way you could get my attention? What is it about me, my choices, my actions, my thinking? Where do I need to alter my course so that you don't have to resort to this kind of thing in my life anymore to get my attention? Maybe you're Samson. From my own experience, I find that if I don't ask the question, I never get to the answer. I just suffer. It kind of goes away after a while. I assume it's just one of those seasons in life. And yeah, that that is a sense of it. God moves in those ways and seasons. But what you don't want to say to yourself is, woe is me. What you should be saying to yourself is, your will be done. Because there's no no coincidences. There's no accidents. Things like this happen for purpose. So let's make 2016 the year we obey at the outset. Let's hope that's our approach. But if we don't, then let's use it as a year in which we test those negative circumstances in our heart with the question... Lord, when did I step off the path? What are you trying to direct me back to? What, what is it I'm missing? And I assure you, if you ask that question with sincere intent, the Lord is more than capable of giving you a loud, clear answer, one way or another. I'd like to hope this is a year we turn from persistent sin and frustration and turn to the Spirit and accept our mission to enter into service to Him and obedience. That would be a, a year that you'll never forget. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and communion. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder from Samson. Father, I'm always 
mindful to thank you for the reminders that come from men and women who have not fallen, followed, followed you properly, but have fallen into sin. And I'm not sure, Father, if that's because I identify more with that than I do with those who have followed you faithfully, or if it's simply that the negative examples can be the most powerful sometimes. But either way, Father, I thank you that you capture our attention through the lives of men and women who have fallen. Because at the same time, Father, that they encourage us to do better, they also encourage us to remember that no one's perfect and that you are not grading us on the curve. But, Father, you are grading us against the pure and precious blood of the innocent Lamb. You're grading us according to the perfection Christ earned for us. And by our faith in Christ, Father, we have been granted that perfection. Not by our own works, not because we deserve it, not because that's who we truly are, even now, but because you see us that way. One day, Father, in your, in your mercy, you will grant us a body that is sinless and perfect. But again, Father, only because Christ earned it for us and we are thankful. But let this year to come, Father, be a year in which we seek to serve you in the obedience that you command, not because we are earning anything, Father, but because we are so grateful for what we already have. I pray, Father, you give us a heart to be that person so that we might receive the full pleasure that you have for those who serve you and the reward that comes with it. Give us another year, Father. But we do ask, Father, that if it be your will, Christ would come back this year. We want to serve you every day you give us, but we don't want any more of those days than you need. Because we look forward to the day we be with you in perfection, Father. We thank you for that. Let this year be a year we see you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.